The Vital Way, where ancient wisdom meets the cutting edge to optimize your vitality and performance. There are no right ways, just better ways. Welcome to The Vital Way Podcast. I'm Logan Christopher, and I'm happy to have on the call Dr. Tom Urema. Uh, I know Tom through a business group that I attend, and uh, just seeing his experience, you know, he's not like most doctors, and what we talk about on the vital way and that Superman herbs, you know, uh, we take more of a alternative approach to medicine. There's certainly great aspects to Western medicine, but there's obviously some serious flawbacks to it. So Tom, Dr. Tom Hirima, he really marries the two, and he's he's been in this game for a long time. He's a pioneering physician passionately committed to bridging the best of all systems of medicine and delivering practical, cost-effective solutions to his patients. Among the early physicians who established the specialty of emergency medicine in the U.S. during the early 80s, he appreciated allopathy's triumph in acute life-threatening conditions as well as its failings in reversing chronic lifestyle-related disease. At the age of 41, the sudden diagnosis of type 2 diabetes with no conventional risk factors, motivated him to bridge Ayurveda, traditional oriental medicine, and Western biochemical nutrition to find his own cure. The eventual outcome was not only successful disease reversal, but also the self-publication of a seven-time national award-winning patient guidebook and cookbook, Eat, Taste, Heal, now in its ninth printing. Uh, it could go on and on, and uh, I really want to bring Tom. He's a great storyteller, so we're going to get into some fine stuff. So thanks for joining us today, Tom. Logan, it's an honor to be here. Thank you. Okay. So uh, could you give a little more background on what led you to becoming a doctor and also what shifted you from the the Western allopathy approach into uh, Ayurveda, Chinese medicine, that sort of thing? Yeah, sure. That's always a great question, isn't it? I mean, for for each of us, what, what has us uh, fall into our career and profession is I think kind of a combination of ancestral DNA and our own destiny, and mm-hmm. I think that that was certainly the case for me. My my mother was a registered nurse, and and my father was a military guy, a military engineer who um, then in his the middle part of his life uh, joined the space program. So I actually grew up in Cape Canaveral, and my dad literally turned the bolts on the rockets that went to the moon. So I think from from those two sides, there was this tremendous altruism that came from both my mother and my father, and and certainly a lot of humanism uh, from my mother's side, and being a, um, a medical professional. And on my father's side, there was this this whole quality of of taking on the impossible. You know, back in you know late 50s, early 60s, you know, going to the moon, it was just incomprehensible. So with those things kind of in my DNA, you know, my own passions were the love of nature and this incredible curiosity. And um, so those those three things coming together, you know, is you know, medicine seemed to be a, a shoe in. I, I think I kind of came upon that at <clears throat> oh, even before I was ten years of age. But then, you know, as we grow, we kind of you know, our parents funnel us into this level of curriculum or into these extracurricular activities, and you try out different things. And 
So there was some meandering there, of course, but um, eventually, um, um, you know, destiny kind of uh, played a big role. Um, I had, um, when, uh, when I left Cape Canaveral, Florida for my, my uh, undergraduate education, I, uh, being, um, being a really good student, being a really good athlete, being a, you know, an honest citizen and all that kind of stuff, I went to West Point, the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, and especially since my father was such a strong military man. And interestingly enough, while I was there, I was in, among the first people in the United States uh, that learned transcendental meditation. Can you imagine learning transcendental meditation at, at a military academy? It was very interesting. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it, um, you know, with, with that practice, I really, really um, honor that, that lineage and that practice for kind of like saving my saving my mind and my emotional body and my soul and, and the indoctrination that was going on at, the, at West Point, and also giving me access to, to levels of, of beingness with my mind and my mind-body that I otherwise wouldn't have had. So that was kind of cool. And, and then ultimately, I, I um, uh, finished my undergraduate career at University of Virginia, and um, by that, I was uh, among... Um, among some of the early, truly uh, kind of southern Chinese kung fu systems that came to the United States. And, you know, we all of of my generation remember David Carradine and the television show Kung Fu and all the mystical powers of both, you know, protection and physical force, but also healing that that employed. And um, this was a lot, what we were being taught was a lot different than the typical Taekwondo that had, and the uh, kind of Chuck Norris uh, beat 'em up karate that had whitewashed the United States in these franchises. This was the real authentic stuff, and so that that practice of meditation and that practice of true Eastern martial and healing arts coming together, um, I you know at a tender tender age of late teens, early twenties, you know I started to actually perceive things and feel things in my own body quite, you know, quite naturally that I had no prejudice against that, that were, you know, more than what I think, uh, you know, my parents had had the benefit of experiencing in their lifetime. And then there was a real pivotal thing that happened. And I was, by that time, I was already falling into a pre-medical curriculum. And, and I actually dual majored in studio art as well as, uh, pre-med. So I was really kind of intuitively engaged in both the science and art of medicine. And um, uh, my last year at University of Virginia, um, there was, um, I was working in this research institute, this wound healing uh, research, uh, research center for the burn unit at University of Virginia. And there was a, um, one of my fellow researchers was um, a um, uh, he was he was living in the Tibetan house. University of Virginia was one of the few one of two universities in the United States that had a Tibetan studies program. And he said, "Hey, uh, Tom, um, this weekend right near your your apartment is going to be this lecture by this guy named um, His Holiness the Dalai Lama." And this was like back in around 1980. Uh, no, not 1978, I believe, 78, 79. 
And I said, well, who's that? And he says, well, this guy is to Buddhism what the Pope is to Catholicism. And I said, well, that sounds pretty cool. So I went and sat at this guy's feet in an audience of about 475 people on His Holiness's very, very first discourse in the West, or at least in the United States. And that, just listening to that gentleman speak, um, that was transformative for me as well. And... Um, and as an act of gratitude uh, for one of the professors arranging that, uh, His Holiness's visa to come to the United States, he left behind his personal physician to teach a course in Tibetan medicine, um, a semester-long course. And so I was one of 11, 11 people that took the first course of Tibetan medicine taught in the United States and by uh, Dr. Yeshi Dandan. So these, these kind of events that that kind of fall in our laps, these destined events, these divine interventions along with our ancestral DNA, I think really set the stage for me of being nurtured at a very early age for what what was going to kind of befall me as a as a practicing physician later on. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's funny. Every time I talk to you, like I learn more of these details and more of these amazing things you've gotten to do over your life. Uh, so you've studied Tibetan medicine, Chinese medicine, Ayurveda. Um, I know this is kind of a big question, and you can take it where you want to go with it, but what are some of the uh, big ideas in either one or of those different systems that have really sort of changed your philosophy of how you uh, work with people um, and how you practice medicine? Wow, that's a fabulous question. You know, if we, if I look back and I look at you know those t- young tender years, and this very inquisitive mind and this very very altruistic heart and trying to figure out how to get tools to do what we want to do in our life, you know, to be of service to others. Um, I, at that early age, I really, I, I may have been a little bit aware of the politics of education or the politics of science or things like that, but mostly, you know, it was. It was just trying to learn stuff, you know, uh, memorize stuff, learn stuff, uh, do well on tests, you know, kind of test it in life, that kind of stuff. And, um, and you know, getting through pre-med, then getting into medical school. Um, and, I, and I have to say, I, I went to a fabulous, fabulous medical school, a place called Eastern Virginia Medical School in Norfolk, Virginia, which was, I think, probably the first holistic allopathic medical school in the United States. It really was, I had a fabulous, fabulous education there with a fabulous faculty. And as I, you know, went through my medical school training, I was just completely overwhelmed by the voluminous memorization that I had to do, you know. Mm -hmm. And I was like, gosh, is there an easier way of doing this, you know? Is Is there... is there any way I can hold this information in my head in an easier way? And I really, really struggled with that. And, um, and it got to a point where it's like, you know what, I, 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 my brain won't hold anymore. I need to get out and I need to start learning hands-on. So I actually left my postgraduate training before I completed it. And um, one of my professors came to me and he said, Yurima, what the heck are you doing? And I said, Quite frankly, I don't know, but I know it's not this. You know, we, we all come to crossroads in our life sometimes where 
you know, we, we know we can't keep going down the same route, but we don't quite know what we are going to do. And um, he was very compassionate about that. And he said, well, Yurima, I've been watching you and listening to the questions that you ask during Grand Rounds and listening to the answers that you give to other professors. And he says, you're an extraordinary clinician just waiting to happen, but you, you, need, to, you need to get some really, really good practical experience. And I said, yeah, that's what I think, too. I, I um, you know, I've got too much, you know, too many words bouncing around inside my head. And he says, well, I've got a bunch of contracts uh, to staff ERs, emergency rooms, in, in, in this particular area. This, we were in New Orleans at the time. And uh, he says, why don't you come work for me in my emergency rooms? I said, well, that sounds good. You know, I've got student loans to pay off all that. And he says, you'll get a lot of broad experience, and that's what you need. And I said, well, that's what I want to learn. I, I don't, you know, I don't want to become a left eyeball doctor or a right kidney doctor. I just want to become <laughs> the best doctor I can become. So I started working in his emergency rooms, and I loved it. And that was in the days where emergency medicine really wasn't a specialty yet. So I was of this generation of physicians who we just started working and we said, hey, we could, we could really, really change the landscape for, uh, for Americans with regard to poisonings and with regard to burns and with regard to trauma and with regard to all these things that are like the leading causes of death for both adults and for children. And so we created a specialty, and we created systems, and we created political lobbies, and we even did, like, prevention, you know, the, like the Smokey the Bear and the Poison Control Centers and Red Cross CPR training and all that stuff. That came out of our, our specialty. And, um, and so it was a very, very exciting time. And, and most of us can remember those, those old television shows, ER and, and, and uh, Grey's Anatomy, we were mm -hmm. we were literally you know leaving work and going home and writing down you know 250 400 word synopsises of what we saw and sending them off to Hollywood and getting 50 bucks a pop you know so <laughs> so they could make them into television shows it was it was a really really dramatic and fast moving and exciting time where we were using the powers of our perception and our intuition and science and all bringing them together to create these really, really beneficial treatments for people. And that was a, an amazing, amazing era of American medicine. And um, as that kind of progressed, um, it got to a point where, where we kind of handled the big emergency killers. And, and then I saw that what I was doing day to day more and more in the ER was not really, you know, rescuing the, the dying person from the Grim Reaper, but I was just rubber stamping prescriptions for chronic disease states, you know, like high blood pressure or diabetes or arthritic joints or chronic gastrointestinal problems or chronic respiratory disease. And I really wasn't doing that high adrenaline stuff so much. And I thought, you know, this is very interesting. We've, we've kind of like handled what we came in here to do, both in acute treatment and in prevention. And I'm putting a lot of time, energy, and effort into these chronic disease states. And yes, these medicines that I'm writing prescriptions for are improving the quality of life. They're taking around 
away pain or making people uh, you know able to breathe or you know do other things but it's it's not affecting the underlying disease process and um, I said you know what I I'm not sure I can continue to do this because I had this kind of little saying that I had somehow assimilated from reading very, very old doctor's memoirs that said something like, you know, the, the mediocre physician treats symptoms, the better physician treats diseases, but the superlative physician does all of that and educates their patients on how to live in their body so that they can actually reverse their disease and live throughout their lifespan preventing what they're prone to get. So it was another one of those crossroads where, you know, I just, you know, looking at myself in the mirror in the morning, I said, you know, i got to make a change, and what the heck am I going to do? And so fortunately, you know, destiny kind of provided in my lap some, some good mentors, and I began to study traditional Chinese medicine, began to study Ayurveda, began to study homeopathy, began to study herbalism, began to study environmental medicine, and and I, I even got to study like really, really hard science stuff on spiritual healing, where we would take these purported psychic healers and put them in these Faraday cages and, and wire them up to EEGs and EKGs and do these state-of-the-art Sony electronic biophoton counters on their chakras while they were doing or supposedly doing remote healing on someone in another Faraday box, another Faraday cage in the other end of the building and doing simultaneous electrophysiological monitoring on them as well. And, and so it was... It was just incredible science, incredible science. And, um, and then what I did was I, you know, I, I had, again, I got to this point where I, was, I had so much information clanking around in my head. I used to say if I, if I leaned over too far to one side, I'd, my head would, like, take me over onto the floor. So, <laughs> so it was like, how can I possibly integrate all of this? And how can I test it? on my patients. And um, so I started, you know, kind of thinking, well, I'll, I'll start doing this or that in the emergency rooms, and, and uh, I could kind of get away with that on the night shifts because the nurses and I got along really well, and they'd kind of, you know, they were kind of curious and fascinated by it. But then I started to realize that, you know, I was actually violating uh, hospital bylaws by bringing some of this, you know, alternative medicine into the ivory tower of allopathy. So I said, I better not do that. What else can I do? And, and you know, now being, you know, 8, 10, 12 years into my career, I said, you know what, when anytime we start implementing some new technique in medicine, the first few go-rounds tends to be a little bit clumsy. And I really don't want to be injuring people with clumsy application of the of this new and exciting sciences that I've learned from all these other disciplines. So I had this very, very naive notion that, well, I'm, I'm in San Diego at the time, and I said, there are these alternative cancer clinics uh, in Tijuana, and I'll just go down there and I'll start practicing at these alternative cancer clinics because those cancer patients, well, they're already dying, you know, and if I'm clumsy, then 
then you know it, it won't be such a glaring mistake. And um, it, it may sound a little bit perverse, but that was kind of my my take on it all. You know how to how to be the least harmful, you know, in implementing these new clumsy methods. And as it turned out, I, I didn't even have to go to Tijuana. There was a, an alternative cancer clinic just right around the corner from the the hospital ER that I was working at that had never gotten chased south of the border. And I walked in there, they hired me on the spot, and I started seeing patients during the day while I worked the night shift in the ER, and and it was the most eye-opening experience that I may have ever had with patients. And, and what I saw was this like whole chain of patients that were being treated through all sorts of different alternative medicines, or they had been treated, you know, they, they were patients that had, had not one, not two, but maybe three different primary cancers in their lifespan. And the original treatment was done, you know, way back in the in the 30s or 40s with 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 radon, which was just like, oh, it was it was a tr- a terrible, terrible radiation treatment that was very clumsy, but the patient survived. And then they got another cancer 15 years later, and then they were treated this way, and then they got a third cancer. And I was going, you guys, what? How, you mean you're not dying of these cancers? And because it was a it was it was a residential place where people would come for you know several hours a day, like six eight hours a day. They would eat there. They would they would do classes there. We would consult with them. We had our own laboratory and our own blood bank. We were making autologous vaccines to the. We were taking the tumor from the patient, grinding it up, and making it into a vaccine and giving it back to them. That was one of the hallmarks of what we were doing. And and this. This vaccine had been given for like 30 or 40 years and uh, had quite a lot of history and a lot of science behind it that was published and whatnot. And this was not taught to me in medical school at all. So I was, what I'd been studying in all of these alternative disciplines all of a sudden had, had, had credence with these patients. And listening to them, it was like, wow, you know, what, you know I would ask them, what, what do you think helped you? And they would tell me these most amazing stories that were, you know, either alternative treatments or psycho-emotional features that had, or spiritual healing that had helped them. And, you know, I, I wasn't in a position to argue science against their, the, the, the reality of their life. And then this one particular patient, I'll never, never, ever forget this one particular patient. This patient came in. She was... She was in her 80s, mid-80s. She was about four foot six, and she was one of these patients that had had, you know, a lot of cancer in her lifetime and was an incredible survivor. And she she had these really, really just shining eyes, and her skin was absolutely beautiful, and she had this tremendous scoliosis of her spine. That's this kind of S-shaped curvature of her spine, and. And with that, her one of one side of her rib cage was literally buried down into her pelvis. So I knew that that side of her of her thorax, of her chest, the the lungs would be quite compressed, and and she would probably have excess fluid there and a chronic chronic pneumonia or chronic atelectasis, and and that would probably be influencing this or that in her. And 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 so I I examined her and. And I was all of a sudden shocked that based upon my physical exam, 
I said, Tom, her tissues are healthier than the tissues of the 40-year-olds that are coming into the emergency room one block away where you're rubber stamping the prescriptions for high blood pressure medicine. Her tissue is healthier at 85. She has no fluid in the bottom of her lungs. And, and you know, her tissues, her skin, her mucosa, her tear film, you know, her hair, her nails, they're all healthier. And in medicine, among doctors, we have this private joke that, that we teach interns very on where you send two or three interns in to take a history from a patient. They come out and they have them recite the histories and each history is different. And so uh, it's like, like spreading the rumor, you know, as, as rumors go, mm-hmm. the, the story changes over time. But the, the, there's a kind of a mean joke that, that professors of medicine teach young interns and they say, okay, so you all talk to the same patient, you're all telling us the different histories we believe that each of you are not lying. The, to underscore this is the, the principle that patients lie. Know that. Patients always lie. You know? so, so rely on the tissue to tell you what's really going on. Rely on your physical exam. Yes, we take histories, but you know, patients are going to tell their story one way or another. And so mm-hmm. I was sitting there, and I go, you know what? tissue never lies, you know, and, and I'm kind of curious of this woman, what is it that's really made a difference for you in this long and glorious life? And she started telling me, you know, what she thought had really made a difference. And it was, well, she says, I got to tell you, Dr. Tom, number one, number one, number one is nutrition. And she said, number two is how I breathe, because you can see that I only got like one in a third of a lung, you know, because the other two-thirds are kind of collapsed. So how I breathe. And number three is how I move while I'm breathing. So I go out dancing two or three times a week, you know. And here's this 85-year-old lady who's just, you know, she's got, she's just absolutely radiantly beautiful. And I'm going, oh, man, I bet she's knocking them dead on the dance floor. And then she said, I really, really believe in this vaccine that you guys are doing. I think there's great benefit to using intelligent, intelligent treatment of the immune system. She says, I don't necessarily go out and get other vaccines, but the vaccine that you guys make at your own ranch up in northern San Diego County from the blood and, from the, and the samples that you take from me here in this laboratory, she says, I really believe in the benefit of that vaccine. And she says, you know, and the other thing is I take just a little, little tiny bit of whiskey, you know, a couple of times a week. And sometimes I'll have a little bit of an herbal wine instead. And I said, an herbal wine? I'd never heard of an herbal wine before. And she says, well, my great-grandmother taught me how to make dandelion wine. And, and sometimes I'll make that. I'll literally go out and pull the weeds in my backyard and mash them up and let them ferment and self-generate their own alcohol and, you know, when, when I have that availability, I'll take a tablespoon of that every night before I go to bed. And so I think there's – I've found myself in places where in some, in some practices of my craft, like emergency rooms, where I was seeing a patient about every 90 seconds 
and just you know having to move people through on a human conveyor belt through the river of human suffering and then there's been other times where I've had great luxury to really really listen to people's story and and to really go deep into what their truth is and so I've been very very blessed so one of the things that came out of that was that you know there are some very very simple principles that we can use in the practice of medicine and as we go into these more ancient systems whether it's traditional Chinese medicine or into Ayurveda or Yunani or shamanistic medicine these the the, the, the principles, the underlying principles in all of these systems, there's a lot of similarity to. And they're mm-hmm. time-tested, and they've proven themselves over the centuries. You know, things like breathing and movement and the use of certain plant material in, in alcohol or in water as tea, uh, the use of food as medicine. And so kind of bridging that gap between those very, very simple but highly impactful treatments and modern pharmacology was a really, really big challenge. How do you bridge those two things? It's not like you necessarily have too much information clanking around in the head, but there's, there's this tremendous disparity that has to be bridged. And so I said, well, let me... How can I study this? You know, I mean, the, the crossover is probably going to be herbology, you know? And mm-hmm. the European, Western, modern approach to herbology that I could find in herbal textbooks was all biochemical. But when I went and studied with indigenous healers that were, you know, literally going out and picking herbs, they didn't know any modern biochemistry. They were doing things by taste, or by cosmology. And so as I started going into Ayurveda and traditional Chinese medicine, I could see that that those systems, they were based upon what I call cyclical knowledge rather than reductionistic linear knowledge. And this was a big, big insight for me, was that what I had learned in the West was when you go to school, you, you start off with this non-knowingness. And then you start stacking facts or theories or premises, and you learn in a, in a linear way from not knowing to what is known to the fringes of what we, what we don't know yet, but we're experimenting on. And it's very, very linear. And then if you want to learn something else, then you start on another radial from where you are and go out in that direction until you reach the limits of the atmosphere of what's known. And then you start on another radial and keep going out. So that kind of linear learning on radials from that which we know to that which is not known, it gives great credence to the expert, but it leads to a fragmentation of knowledge. And that's what we were suffering from in those days in medicine was the hyper-specialization of medicine. And what was really being called forth was holism. And so as I looked at these systems that were ancient and by nature holistic, they had cyclical systems of information where everything looped back upon itself. 
And I go, well, this is fascinating. If I, if I learn the basic components of the cycle, then the more times I go around the block, the more the hologram gets resolved over the time. And what I learn actually gets married with my experience of learning or of observation. And that always has helped me learn. And so my I made this, this kind of, uh, I kind of stuck my stake in the ground at that time when I had that insight. And I said, okay, from this point forward, I'm going to commit myself to cyclical learning. And, and even if I get sidetracked into these radials of biochemistry or electrophysiology or even, you know, spiritual hierarchies, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to plug it into this framework that is cyclical. And um, at that time, you know, we were just starting to get traditional Chinese medicine textbooks being translated into English. We were beginning to get... Uh, Ayurveda books coming into um, into the West, and it wasn't necessarily uh, a, there, there was a lot of shift towards being this linear learning rather than the holistic learning. So I uh, retired from my practice of emergency medicine, and I set up the first cash-based primary care practice of medicine in the state of Hawaii. And I said, I'm going to move to a place that's very naturalistic where there's all these different ethnicities, there's all these different ages, there's all these, you know, East, East people, West people, North people, South people. It's going to be this great human laboratory, and I'm going to learn from my patients. And I'm going to study on my own, but I'm going to really, really learn from my patients, and I'm going to, and I'm going to you know, try to put this into a naturalistic cycle of information. And, um, and it was fascinating. I, that's what I did. And, and my patients did teach me. And then I came down at age 41 with type 2 diabetes, with no diabetes in my family, not being overweight, um, not living on, you know, I had a, a good diet. I was exercising. I was, I, I had, by, from a Western viewpoint, I had absolutely no risk factors for type 2 diabetes. And it was out of the box, and it frightened the bejesus out of me because I figured, well, I'm 41. I'm probably like a little bit less than one half of my lifespan. And from my experience taking care of patients with diabetes in the emergency room, I know what the second half of my life is going to be like. I know what drugs I'm going to be on. I know what's going to happen to my toes. I know what's going to happen to my eyesight. I know what's going to happen to my kidneys. I, I know about my heart attacks and my strokes that I'm going to have, and this is not a pretty picture, and it doesn't fit what I know diagnostically from my Western mind of allopathic medicine. So I said I got to go back. I got to go back into these Eastern sciences, really hard and heavy now. And so I went into those systems and and started bridging the vernacular, bridging the vocabulary of the types of syndromes that are associated with type two diabetes from traditional Chinese medicine and the types of syndromes that are associated from Ayurveda and, and bridging that with this kind of emerging field of, of functional nutrition that was starting, to, um, give, was starting to sprout in Western, in, in Western, in the Western mind, 
parallel to pharmaceutical medicine. And so in about 14 months, I completely re regressed my type 2 diabetes and, and had developed these and tested these hypotheses on myself based upon these cyclical systems of, of thinking that were based in the cycles of nature. And um, that, was, that was exciting. You know, I was like, wow, you know, I, I don't know of anyone else who's reversed type 2 diabetes. I've done it myself. I wonder if I could take these same principles and apply them to my patients with rheumatoid arthritis, my patients with heart disease, my patients with, you know, degenerative arthritis, my patients with asthma. And so I started applying those principles, and, and I got traction. And, and as time went on, you know, my, my patient pool grew considerably, and, and more and more people on my island that I was living on would come to see me. And, and on that island, there was all different socioeconomic strata. And I became confronted with a new problem that I'd never expected, and that was, you know, doctor, I've saved my nickels and dimes to come pay for your consultation, but I have no money for any medicine. I was like, wow, I'm, I'm flat-footed. I'm, I'm, I'm dead in the water. I, I can give this person advice, but they, they can't they can't purchase my encapsulated little this or my alcohol-based tincture of that. I'm, we're both in trouble here. And so I started looking at this whole economy of healthcare. What's the true economy of healthcare? And how am I going to model that in a cash-based practice of medicine? And so I said, um, you know what? You know, in the Hawaiian Islands, food is very, very expensive in the grocery store, but we have these farmer's markets, you know, where local people are growing their own food and bringing them to the market, and quite frankly, they kind of scare me, because when I go to the farmer's market, I, I know less than 25% of all the food that are there, because there's, Philip, there's food from the Philippines, there's food from Tahiti, there's food from China and Korea, and there's food from, I, I don't, maybe from Mars and other planets, I don't know, I just, I look at this food, and it's, looks to me like a fruit, but I've never seen any kind of fruit like that. And if I taste it, it's, oh, my goodness. And, it, and when it, it tastes really good, but it smells to high heaven. I can't believe this is, you know, God would make a fruit like that. And um, so I said, well, you know, what if we went back to that ancient principle of using food as medicine? And I've got a lot to learn here. So we started to study and catalog all the foods. But then the question was, well, how are we going to catalog these foods? We're going to catalog them biochemically and do that linear-based information on it, or are we going to do it a different way? Are we Are going to do it in that cyclical model? And um, quite fortunately for me, I, one of my patients, again, gave me a great lesson. It was a, it was a woman who was a cafeteria worker at the local elementary school. And I, I, when you think about it, it's like, Okay, come on. Like elementary school workers got to get paid about the least of anyone in the formal workforce, and a cafeteria worker is probably getting paid less than a teacher. So I could just imagine how little she was getting paid. And she came into me with this intractable vertigo, this this spinning sensation in her head that was having her lose more than 20 days of work every month. And see, she said, you know, I've tried pharmaceuticals, I've tried acupuncture, I've tried homeopathy, I've tried herbs, 
and nothing has benefited me, and you're my only hope. And so I brought her in, and I examined her, and I said, well, you know, I, you know, you work in the cafeteria, and you have access to a lot of kind of food, different foods, right? And she goes, yeah, and we use mostly local food because we can't pay to pay the uh, prices for the Safeway or for the imported food from the mainland. And I said, okay, so we're going to use, I'm going to give you a food prescription to use, and I want you to try that. And she says, well, I can do that. And so she came back after a few weeks, and she says, oh, I'm better, I'm better, I'm better. And I'm going, yeah, this is the placebo effect. Let's bring her back in another two weeks. And two weeks later, she came in, and she says, I'm even better still. She says, I only, lo- I only lost about five days of work in the last month. And I said, well, that is profound, but let's, let's see if this continues. I said, come back to see me in another few weeks. So another two or three weeks come, comes by, and she doesn't show up. And I kind of think, oh, she's, um, she didn't get better, so she's not going to come back to see me. And uh, I didn't have that much confidence that I was a good enough doctor in, in my prescribing of food to really heal her condition. And so then another few weeks went by, and she showed up. And I go, wow, I'm kind of surprised to see you. And she was very, very sheepish walking in. And I was like, hmm, wonder what's up here. And, and she said, doctor, she says, I'm kind of embarrassed. And I said, well, why are you embarrassed? And she said, well, I didn't do what you asked me to do perfectly. Even after I'd seen that it was working, you know, I, I did it really perfectly for four weeks and I got better. But then I quit doing it and I got worse. And then I would do it again and I would get better. And then I would stop doing it and I would get worse. I go, Wow. It really was working then. And she says, and then she like dropped her eyes to the floor and she almost like started crying. I'm I'm getting teared up just thinking about remembering this. And she said, doctor, I'm really, really embarrassed now. I'm going, wow, what could be more embarrassing than what you already told me? And she says, well, she says, you know, even for me living on this island for as long as I have, I don't know all the foods that are here. And I said, really? And she said, yeah. And she said, I I went into the Safeway, and they have that really expensive food there at the Safeway. I go, yeah, I know. I can hardly shop there. And she goes, well, I went in there, and I saw this kind of food in the produce department that I never, ever had seen before. And something had, like, drew me like a magnet to that food. And I went over, and I picked it up, and I was looking at it, trying to figure out what it was, And then in a split second, I broke off part of that raw food, and I stuck it in my mouth, and I chewed it and swallowed it. And she started crying. She said, Dr. Tom, that's that's stealing, you know. And I was like, wow, she's confessing to me now. I'm like a priest. And she goes, well, I said, what would you do then? You know, try not to be judgmental. And she says, well, I went ahead and, and bought it. And I took it home, and I cooked it up, and boy, it's really helped dramatically. And I said, wow, this is really, really fascinating. This woman was intuitively, magnetically drawn to the food that was the most powerful thing on the island that could heal her, and her subtle sense of perception and the sense of taste actually you know, is is integral to her healing. 
So about this time, my patients were asking me to write a book to, to codify what I was telling them to do. They say, we keep saving our, our nickels and dimes in order to pay for these consultations, and learning comes through repetition. Could you, like, you know, write us a book? And so a couple of my patients and myself, we self-published this book, and, and I intentionally took that word from that woman's experience, the word of taste, and sandwiched it in between eating and healing. So the name of the book is Eat, Taste, Heal, with hyphens in between, because it all runs together. And I really, really am internally grateful for that lesson that that one patient taught me and, and her trust to confess to me her one of her you know most shameful experiences of, quote, stealing food in the Safeway. So the, you know, bringing things into a cyclical system, bringing into a, things into a system based on taste, and yes, maybe using some reductionistic, um, you know, discovery or, or paradigms to learn flavonoids and antioxidants and, uh, you know, enzymes and cofactors and minerals, but, but to really have this, this ability to to understand the cycles of nature and go around the block with the cycles of nature a few times so that we learn nature's grace. And um, this, was, this was a fascinating thing because as we started writing this book, we wrestled with how are we going to teach this to lay people? How are we going to teach this to the common Joe and Joanne? you know, how to use this method. And I said, well, if, if we go into traditional Chinese medicine, their cyclical system has five elements, and I can't hold five things in my mind. I just don't have that kind of mind. I'm, I, I applaud those that do. But Ayurveda had, had a three-dosha system, and I can't hold three things in my mind, hot, cold, temperate, yes, no, maybe, black, mm-hmm. white, gray. So for my benefit... <laughs> As a writer teacher, I said let's let's use the Ayurvedic system as the model for teaching this stuff, and that's what we did. And um, we're very happy and pleased with the fact that we're now in our ninth printing, and and the book's gone out all over the world, and we've done no marketing at all. It's a it's a book that will continue to help people long after my lifespan, and um, and every few weeks I get emails from people that say you know what I was in a really really bad way and then someone passed that book on to me and by reading it and just kind of like dabbling in that a little bit my life has been changed for the better so that's a great a great reward for those of us that that um, live and work as as public servants Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's really important, like you were saying about the the name of the book, Eat, Taste, Heal, uh, going back to any of these systems, Chinese medicine, Ayurveda, like they, the taste is such an important part, uh, and it, it's reflecting so much. It's that idea of the, the cycles too, right? You know, what is the sort of the properties of the food or the herb, and what is that going to then go do in your body, yet, uh, you know, Besides things tasting sweet and tasting good, we generally, most people don't even think about taste at all in the West, and especially not in those terms. Yeah, yeah. And it, and it's, you know, it was very interesting because I um, 
had the great honor of being the personal physician for a monastery on the island. And, you know, people that spend two or four hours a day in meditation every day and, and eat very simply, well, well, they still get sick, you know, like, like all of us do. But um, their body's sensitivity to sensory input is um, it, it's a lot more profound. And, and I can remember in certain of those cases at certain points in time where, you know, I was attending some of the monastics and I said, oh, you know what, we just need to give you this one particular herb married with this one particular food. And, and uh, because it has this particular taste constellation, and this is what's going to harmonize your physiology. And I would go out to the formulary, and it's like, oh, geez, the last bottle of that herb just disappeared, and it's not available locally. It's not in season or whatever. And so I'd go back, and gosh, gosh, I don't know what to do. And, and they would say, well, Dr. Tom, just do you have any pictures of the herb? Do you have any descriptions of the herb that I can read? I, I, I may have, you know, I may have experienced it in my lifetime, and... Oh, oh, I know exactly. Oh, that's that's the herb. That's that's like that's cilantro. We I used to, you know, that used to grow as a weed in my backyard. I know exactly what that is. I'll just meditate on the taste of that herb when I'm when I'm eating that particular meal that you want it, want me to marry it to and I bet that'll work. So means we the powers of the mind and the powers of the senses to realign ourselves is actually quite profound. Yeah, that's uh, that's pretty amazing story because once you have had that experience, there are ways meditating on it, bringing it back, and thus then affecting your physiology. That's pretty profound. Um, so where can people pick up a copy of Eat, Taste, Heal? Well, where I prefer you to go is, is to um, a website called My Tablet Books. And this is the least expensive way of getting the, the copy of the book. It's, um, it's uh, in digital format. Um, and if you go to My Tablet Books and type in eat-taste-heal, you'll find it there. And if you purchase, I think it's like $9.95 or something. And, and, um, and if you do that, then I will actually you know, get your email address so that as we update the book in the future, you'll get notifications of, of the changes that we do to the book and the expansions that we do to the book. You can also go to Amazon.com. You can go to local bookstores and buy it in, in a hard, hard copy form. It's uh, 357 pages, uh, hardbound, full color for $29.95. It's a steal. It's, um, we have all sorts of um, award-winning food photography uh, even before we publish the book. It's, it's an extraordinarily beautiful book. Uh, and when you purchase it that way, um, if, if you do purchase it that way, please do uh, register. Um, go ahead and purchase the digital edition or reg at least register your hardbound copy so that we have your email and we can stay in touch with you as we add new chapters as we go on. When, when I came up with the, the name Eat, Taste, Heal, I said, you know, this is a really nice formatting for continuation of books, you know, eat, taste, heal your arthritis, eat, taste, heal your diabetes, eat, taste, heal your, your heart disease or whatever. And right now we're working on translations into other languages and, and, we'll, um, and we're expanding the recipes in it. So there's a lot more to come. And, 
and we self-published this book about seven years ago, and and eBooks and digital publishing has really um, accelerated tremendously, and we want to make sure that this gets out to as many people as possible in as many languages as possible, and and we can only do that if we have your contact information. So either digital format or hardbound. We don't have a paper paperback, and it's an, a glorious book. You'll it'll make an excellent gift to anyone you know that likes anyone you know who's a foodie or anyone who's involved in natural healing. Half the book is a the first half of the book is a um, uh, kind of like a, a dummy's guide for Ayurveda. We've we've taken the basic and fundamental Ayurvedic con uh, uh, principles and simplified them for the Western mind. And we've gotten um, reviews from all around the world saying that this is the, the best primer on Ayurveda, um, even within, within the country of India from which, from which uh, Ayurveda originated. So we did a, a really, really thoughtful job in the way we presented the information. There's been some things that I've learned as a physician clinician since then that um, where this this method that I call the Eat, Taste, Heal method, although it is very, very ancient and very, very revered, the actual method of it that I'm presenting, uh, constitutional analysis and constitutional harmonization through using food and lifestyle as medicine in a doshically applied way, what, what I find is that there's a certain disease condition that's, that's epidemic right now that that method um, works too slowly for my, for, my, um, for my desire with patients. You know, we, we live in a lifestyle and a, and a time in, in history right now where things are moving very, very fast and probably accelerating greatly. And so there is this emerging epidemic occurring not only in the United States but and not and not even only occurring in the developed countries of the world but it's a worldwide epidemic something that we call metabolic syndrome and so the eat taste heal method is extremely useful for that but it's not getting the traction as fast as what most people in the United States at least are demanding in terms of treatment so about three years ago, I um, created another educational system. It's called Get Your Body Back. It's um, on the Internet. It's under uh, getyourbodyback.org. Uh, my wife and I started a nationwide organization committed to the reversal of this epidemic of diabetes. Diabetes is type 2 diabetes collapsed in on obesity, and it's something that um, – Medically, scientifically, we call metabolic syndrome. We first called it Syndrome X. Now we, we renamed it metabolic syndrome. It might get another name in another few years. Right now, I'm calling it diabetes. And it is, its feature is stubborn midsection spread. That's what lay people you know, need to know, is if, if you have a midsection that has more mass in it than what you feel comfortable with, you have a disease process going on in your body. And depending upon your genetics, 
that could lead you to heart disease. It could lead you to diabetes. It could lead you to arthritis. It could lead you to chronic respiratory conditions. It could lead you in a lot of different ways according to your genetics. It's, it's a common denominator um, pathophysiology, if you will. And we have the nutritional and lifestyle technology to very, very rapidly reverse that. And um, the rapid reversal of stubborn midsection fat is a fascinating, fascinating um, science right now, fraught with great political and economic agendas. And um, so I invite you all to, to go and to um, visit getyourbodyback.org. And there I have a, um, a webinar, a, a recorded webinar on there you can watch. It runs about 45 minutes that um, I go through and discuss some of these myths that are, that are circulating in our informational culture about um, what's the appropriate treatment for this. And uh, I think you'll find that very interesting. Um, people that are in um, the California, in the state of California, they can. Um, they're, you're more than welcome. I invite you to call my office and schedule a free consultation with me. If you want to know the office's phone number, I'll give it to you right now. It's 831-462-3776, and you can call and schedule a free consultation. You can also go to my clinic website, which is Dr. Tom Urema, Dr. Tom T O M. Urema, Y-A-R-E-M-A, drtomurema.com, and you can get the phone number off that website as well. I'll make sure there's links to everything in the show notes for people as well, so they can find that all in one place on her website. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, well, uh, I mean, there's so many more things I could ask you, but we've already run a little long here, so I'd love to have you back some other time where we can dive a little bit deeper into some of these uh, different topics and Ayurveda talking about the doshas, the constitutions, and uh, how these tastes can affect and metabolic syndrome, everything. We could talk a lot more about, but I just want to uh, take a moment right now to say thank you very much, Dr. Tom. Well, it's been an honor, and, and I want to thank you personally, Logan, for um, Superman Herbs and its commitment to unleashing the power of nature. We're <laughs> right there behind you as one of your great supporters. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. Uh, any final closing thoughts? One of my great mentors, when I asked him what's, what's the best thing I could do for every one of my patients, he said, bless them and teach them to bless others. So I bless each and every one of you that's listening and invite you to to just take one step, just take one step towards that which will give you, your loved ones, your family members, the ability to witness the miracle of healing. God bless. Well, thank you very much, and thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, like I mentioned before, you can find more details about this as well as we will have the full transcript available over at supermanherbs.com. And if you really enjoy the podcast, we always appreciate it a review on iTunes. Thanks everyone for listening.